<laughs> I got my hand. <laughs> I should have I prayed for him. Lord, just, I just pray you would just uh, make our hearts tender to what God has to say, to receive your word in your name. Mm, thank you. You don't have to be back here. You can be down there. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Thank you. Well, when John called and said, uh, would I do it this day, I was uh, really appreciated. I enjoy, enjoy doing this. Before I, I, I begin here, though, I do want to just um, talk a little bit about the Tuesday lunch. You know, not all the men have been a part of our Bible study, and I'm doing this on behalf of Richard, our fearless leader. Um, he never told me to do this, but I'm sure he would have if he would have thought of it. Uh, if you haven't been coming, come to the lunch. It's just a fellowship time together. And if uh, you, uh, you know, it's, uh, we chose Dragon Fort because it's good food and relatively inexpensive. Um, six, seven dollars for a meal. If that's too much for you, look at it this way. You can cut the meal in half and have it for two days. It's going to cost you three dollars to eat at home. So if you get two meals, that's six dollars. So you're going to eat for 98 cents. Where can you find a bargain like that? So uh, come and enjoy it. We're just going to have fellowship together. If you don't have the 698, see Richard. He has plenty of 698s. And if you need a ride, see Richard as well. He's our leader, and he'll arrange that for you as well. So uh, Richard is the man. We'd love to have all the men from our church out. Oh, and if you don't like Chinese food, uh, we'll order, skip the dishes, and have them bring whatever you want. And uh, so there's no excuse for you not being there. It's always an honor to speak at your home church, although it's a little bit risky because um, th uh, there's always, um, always friends here who can give you a rough time. My wife says that I deserve everything I get, and uh, I don't quite agree with that, but that's what she says. You know, let me give you an example of, uh, of, of what my friends back in Edmonton used to do to me, things like this. I, would, uh, I worked at a golf course for about eight or nine years after I retired. One day, the guy that I worked with, uh, his name was Don, we'd finished our project early, and we decided that we wanted to shoot nine holes. Uh, it was a nine-hole, we had an 18-hole course and a nine-hole course, so we went to the nine-hole course, and, and I started out really, really well. The first hole, I shot a birdie, which is one below par. Par is what you're supposed to shoot the hole in, and that hole was supposed to be four strokes, and I shot it in three. And that is a rare occasion for me. The next hole, I did par. So things are really going well, and by the end of the day, by the end of the nine holes, I had shot a 35, which is one below par, and I, I mean, that's unheard of. I, I, I do not do that. A 45 is what I would normally shoot. So what did my friends do? A couple days later, they sent me a card, a congratulations card. It was not a congratulations for the fact that I shot a 35. It was a congratulations for the fact that I was on a team in a tournament the week before that came in dead last. Uh, that's, that's my friends. That's my friends, and that's how they treat me. Christmas is a, is a fun time to preach and to share, but it's also a difficult time because all of us know the story so well. We all know what happened. We all know the end result. We all celebrate every year and hear the, the same story again and again. Uh, this year, I actually began thinking about Christmas quite a bit early. And the reason was that our son Raymond started playing Christmas music very, very early. I said, Ray, it's the middle of November. He said, I know, but Christmas is coming. He started playing. 
And so our thoughts were very early around how the baby Jesus was born, how he came, his son came to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then I thought, you know, we, we understand the story, and let me backtrack. Kind of like, you know, how Google Earth zeroes in on a particular spot, and then you can pull back and get the whole big picture. Many important events in the Word of God, probably none of them are more celebrated than the birth of the Lord Jesus. And the Easter story, two main events in our tradition, in our beliefs. But I want to direct our thoughts using the Christmas story in a slightly different direction. It's my thesis, my belief, that we cannot truly celebrate Christmas, and for that matter, Easter as well, without understanding what really happened back in Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. A few years ago, a Christmas carol was introduced. I didn't mention it to the worship team, but I thought maybe they would sing it, maybe they wouldn't. It was one that was written by Mark Lowry and, and Buddy Green. Dis uh, surprised to discover that it was written back in 1984. But we only really heard about it in the last few years. Mary, did you know? How many of you know the song, know the words? Uh, how many is it a favorite of, of a song of yours? It's just one that kind of captured our hearts, isn't it? Asking tough, tough questions. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hands? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And I love this line. When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb. The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Powerful, powerful questions. I suspect that Mary pondered these things many times during her pregnancy. After she'd been told by the angel that she was bearing the Son of God. The era read for us the account that I want to use as the backdrop for the message and leading us in back to Genesis 3 as I suggested. How in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. 
And the angel told Mary the news that she was about to bear, the child, the Son of God. I don't know about you, but if any of us, I suspect, were in that position, hearing those words would initially create a feeling of, what is he saying? What is he saying? And then as the realization would come to pass that he is saying, I am bearing the child, the Messiah, the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, the angel went on to say, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Mary, did you understand, question number one, that your baby, your coming baby, that which is in your womb is the answer to Adam's plight, to Adam's failure. You see, the necessity for a Savior began back early in the history of man. Remember God's statement to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15? Remember when the Lord said to, Abraham, to, to, to Adam, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, to work and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. It was at that time that God saw Adam's aloneness. And he saw that it wasn't good. So he caused Adam to fall into a deep, deep sleep, and God formed Eve from Adam's rib. When God brought her, Eve, to Adam, he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then he said, and then it's recorded for us, that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, as a sidebar, when I read that again, and I'm thinking through that particular passage, what did that statement mean to Adam and Eve? Leave your father and mother and cleave to each other. Remember where Eve came from? Remember where Adam came from? And yet, God thought it necessary to very early in the story of man, give us a lesson on marriage. Give us a lesson on relationships. I don't want my purpose here to be lost when it comes to what's next. But it's so significant. You see, in Genesis 3... The serpent comes to Eve. And we read this account in, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 3. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of the tree in the garden? 
Did God really say that? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now Satan didn't challenge Eve's report that God had said this, don't eat. But rather he took the truth and he distorted it. And he said, you won't die. You won't die. On the contrary, he said, you'll become more alive. You'll be able to distinguish between good and evil. You'll have your eyes opened wide. You will certainly not die, he said in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't it interesting, the mixture of lie and truth that Satan has in those statements? When the woman saw <clears throat> that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and so desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who is with her and he ate it. Adam, you coward. Eve wasn't there when God spoke to you. And you, having personally heard God speak, stood there and didn't say a word. Adam, you coward. For the purpose of God to be realized, his creation, for mankind to worship him, that's his ultimate purpose. It had to be the result of man's free choice. It couldn't be a robotic kind of thing. Worship had to be a result of choice. And so choice was put in front of man and he failed. Worship cannot be robotic. It's Christmas time. Remember the giving of dolls to our little kids, our little girls particularly, string in the back You'd pull the string, and the voice comes out, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Doesn't that just send chills up and down your spine? No. No. Contrast that to a grandchild coming and, and running to your door, and, and, and when you arrive, and jumping up on you, and wrapping their arms around you, and saying to you, I love you, I love you. Or a young couple pledging their vows, saying to each other, I love you. Or even an older couple saying, I love you. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that, that sends chills in your spine to realize what, what God is doing in that relationship. Scripture tells us that at that point, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverage for themselves. Then the man and the wife 
heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The coward man, Adam, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What God said would happen did. Man died physically. Uh, excuse me. Man died not physically, as Satan has said, but spiritually. The purpose God created man for, to worship him, was now lost. Spiritually, he was dead. Everything that God had created had but one purpose, and that was the worship of him. And it was God. Gone. In fact, the real tragedy of the fall was not the plight of man. Man got what he deserved. Man got exactly what he deserved. When we lived in Edmonton, often we would see big signs on the street, the kind that are on little trailers that have, you know, they can put different words on. And the sign would say, big ticket event, don't speed. So if you chose to go 120 kilometers down the road in a 80 kilometer zone, and you get a ticket, you're getting exactly what you deserve. Man got what he deserved. He deserved alienation from God. But that's not the real tragedy. As terrible as that is, he got what he was promised. The real tragedy was that God lost his creation's worship. Man was created to worship God. And when man failed, his worship to God could be no more. Westminster Catechism has it right when it answers the question that it asks. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Was lost. Was gone. And lest we think it's any different for us, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death by sin, in this way death came on all people, 
because all have sinned. Mary, did you know that that kicking baby in your womb was the answer to all of this? You were buried the Son of God. God knew that man would argue throughout all the ages that it isn't my fault. Adam sinned. Why hold me responsible? This is God saying to us in Romans 5, you are guilty in Adam. Yes, you are. But you are also become guilty lest you become too smug. Because you have personally sinned as well. Guilty as charged. Dead spiritually. How dead is dead? The reason that question is valid is because ever since man fell, Man has been trying to find a way of dealing with sin apart from what the Scriptures teach. If I live a good enough life, if I do what's right, it isn't my fault. A person who is devoid of life is dead. Dead spiritually. The only way to overcome death is to be given life from someone on the outside. Over the years, I've conducted a good number of funerals. There's been one common denominator, always been the same common denominator. The person that we are honoring that day has never, ever, never made one comment about the service. Never. I've never heard a voice from the casket saying, hey man, I told you I wanted drums at my service. Or, Sonny, if you don't pick up the pace on that hymn, we won't get to the cemetery before they start charging double. It's never happened. It's never happened. Dead is dead. There is no life. See, that's significant to the whole picture of what God is doing. If we understand death, we understand our complete helplessness spiritually because of the fall of Adam. Death was the result. But God didn't give up on man. He wanted fellowship with his creation. He wanted man to bring to him that purpose for which mankind was created. A fellowship that could only happen through the uh, sacrifice of a perfect lamb. For there to be a sacrifice of the perfect lamb, there had to be a Savior. Mary, did you know That when the angel told you, you are going to be carrying the baby Jesus. That you are carrying the perfect Lamb of God. Sent to pay the penalty of sin. 
the nation of Israel had been offering animal sacrifices for the payment of sins for years and years and years. God demanded the sacrifice of an animal. But the nation of Israel had, when the, they sacrificed at the Passover, had always looked back to their deliverance from Egypt and always looked ahead to the coming of the birth of the perfect Lamb of God and the sacrifice that would atone for sins forever. Mary, did you know that you are the vehicle by, that, by which that perfect sacrifice would make his way to earth? Did you know that your baby was the complete answer to the deepest plight of man? One of the characteristics of man is that we try, and man, I'm speaking of mankind, we try and take things into our own hands. We try and solve our own problems. Even in subtle ways, we try and turn the attention from God to man. All of the major religions of the earth have at the core of their belief system the ability and the responsibility of mankind to do something to earn their salvation. Except Christianity. I was listening to a, a former professor some time back on YouTube, and he was talking about our relationship with God and the kinds of things that we do. And he was talking about Christianity and, and, and our weaknesses and our failures. And he said, and this isn't the exact quote, but it's in essence what he said. When it comes to trying to do something for our salvation, he said, we don't have it in our theology, but we have it in our practice. In other words, we often say clearly, my salvation is by faith alone, but by practice, we still live like our doing something earns us favor in the sight of God. You know, let's think about some illustrations of this. Let's think of worship. Worship is, you know, a subject that has no controversy attached to it. How many times do we subtly turn the attention in our songs to man rather than God? Very easily done. We even turn the attention to man when we talk about the cross. And the cross being central to, to our salvation. And we say something like, when Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay for my sins. Now you might say that's true. And it is. In fact, there's a song that uh, southern, some southern gospel group sings that when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. A and that's true. But that's not the reason Jesus went to the cross. That's a subtly turning the attention of the cross to man. The reason Jesus went to the cross, and I believe I've said this here before, was to be obedient 
to the will of his Father. And in being obedient to the will of his Father, he paid for the sins of mankind. Do you see the difference? That makes the cross all about him. And as a result of that, I get drawn in. But it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about the cross. Mary, did you know that when your baby boy was born, your baby boy would be the piece of the puzzle that allows God's creation to worship Him again in fullness. That which was lost in the fall is restored through the belief in the Son of God who is resident in your bosom. That which was lost at the fall, restored. God being able to be worshipped in perfection and holiness because of the person of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> I spent 10 years traveling in our churches. Probably have visited of our 120 churches. Have probably visited 110 of them. Uh, haven't been to the new ones, obviously, in the last few years. But been in all of our churches. And often, after I would have been in a church and would have spoken at the church, someone would come up to me and say to me, What did you think of our worship? Well, you know, I'm the guest speaker, right? So I would then pontificate. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think it's something to do with spouting off on a subject that you really know nothing about. And, and, and I would share some of my thoughts, but it became very evident very early that they didn't want my opinion. They wanted to tell me their opinion and what they thought. I thought about that for a while. And, and the first thing is to ask a guest speaker what you think about worship. Our worship is asking the wrong person. Let's ask God. What do you think of our worship? And I think he would respond back to us by saying, I'm not going to answer that question, but I will tell you what I think of my worship or my individual worship looking at us as individuals rather than as a corporate thing. I will answer what I think of how you worship me. And he may some say something like, you know, uh, Gordon, I looked at your heart today and I can see that you really love me. You've dealt with issues as they've come along, sin as I've, I've brought it to mind. You didn't let the cares of the world distract you this morning, and I was worshipped. Oh, I saw that you checked your emails twice and even sent a text message, but I, I, I saw that you worshipped me, and, and I was pleased with that. Or he might say, Gordon, remember when you first trusted me? Remember that zeal 
that determination how nothing could distract you from worshiping me? What happened to that? That spark, that zeal, that joyous smile. What would it take to get it back? I saw you worship me this morning, but I missed that relationship we once had. Or you might say, <coughs> Gordon, you're so blah. I wish that you were either for me or against me. Blah means nothing to me. You were just going through the motions this morning, and quite frankly, I find that disgusting. I hate it. Make a choice, Gordon. Or he might say, Gordon, you're an angry person. I know I've said, be angry and, and sin not. But you're not angry at sin or... <coughs> I don't know where the mute switch is, so turn your hearing aids off when I cough. <coughs> you're mad because you didn't get your way. Until you deal with the anger in your life, I can't hear a thing you say. I'm not worshipped. Or he may say, Gordon, you feel you've been wronged. And you have. But until you forgive the person, you can't worship me. Ever. Don't wait for that person to ask your forgiveness that wronged you. They might never do that. Forgive. Because it's the right thing to do. You know, I sent my son to earth. They spit on him, threw on him, threw him out of towns, cursed him, wrongly crucified him on the cross. Yet, on that cross, he looked up at me and said, Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. Now, if you think I'm pointing at anyone or anything, I'm not. I went to Revelation chapter 3, and I looked at the word of the Lord to the seven churches. And that's basically what he said to them. See, mankind doesn't change. We repeat ourselves. Mary, did you know that your baby boy was God's answer to man's plight. Man's inability to worship the Creator. Gordon, do you know that Christ lives in you and that you have the privilege of worshiping Him in absolute fullness? Are you willing to ask the right person your Heavenly Father, that same question. What do you think of my worship? You see, the birth of the baby Jesus is all about, all about worship. The invitation of the Lord is, come and worship. Mary, did you also understand that your conceived baby was the fulfillment of Isaiah and Micah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel. In Isaiah chapter 11, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And from Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Mary, the fulfillment of that is in your womb. Do you know that? Gordon, do you know that what has happened to you and in you as a result of the work of Christ and your belief in it. Do you know what has happened to you? Do you know that God has taken up residence within you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in Corinthians, to each a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. We know with assurance that every believer has within them the fullness of the Spirit of God. Paul said to us that we are to keep the faith and walk in its fullness. Ecclesiastes said, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let me conclude by saying simply this. When Gabriel came to Nazareth and delivered God's message to Mary, Mary could have had two major sentiments. One would be relating to her personal feelings. What can I say to others? How am I going to face the world? I'm the only one who knows that I have not been with a man. Everyone else can think a different thought. How do I face them? What do I say to my mother and my father? That's one area she could have gone. She could have gone to a second area where she would have had to deal with the pressures that the public would place on her. The realization that when she's walking down the narrow streets of Nazareth where she lived, that there would be huddles of people at various places, whispering, talking. She could have been controlled by that. But she chose to write a beautiful prayer in response to what God was doing. For she understood what God was saying Back in the passage that we read, after God had gone through all of the, the angel had gone through all of the message to her about the baby Jesus in her womb, about Elizabeth already being in her sixth month. It's a passage or a phrase that we skip over so easily, but it's the conclusion that God wants us to know 
in every area of our life. In that last verse that we read, verse uh, 37, it says simply this, For no word from God will ever fail. Take that and try and live a life that's contrary to God. Can't do it. If we take that simple statement and apply it to every facet of our lives, for no word from God will ever fail. You know where I have to put that to the test? Our house will sell. Where do you have to put that to the test? What's in your life that's causing distress, causing fear, causing even pain? No word of God will ever fail. Was he with Mary? Absolutely. Was he with Elizabeth? Absolutely. Was he with Zechariah? Even when Zechariah failed and didn't obey or didn't listen to the word of God and so couldn't speak for nine months? Absolutely. Was he with Joseph who came to his engaged to be wife? Realized that she's pregnant? Absolutely. There is no circumstance in life where God will fail. The word from God will never fail. And if you don't remember anything else from this message, remember those few words. For God's word will never fail. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments we could spend around your word. And I pray you would just take them and touch each of our hearts where it needs to be touched. The plight of man was so severe. The failure so great. And yet the restoration covered it all. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We just commit these thoughts to you in Jesus' name. Amen.